All right, we're making our way through the Bible, and we're in Proverbs chapter 6. So let's go back to where Paul was reading for us and pick it up in uh, verse 20 of chapter 6. My son, keep your father's command, and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart, and tie them around your neck. And when you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when you wake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life, to keep you from the evil woman and from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into the neighbor's wife, and whoever touches her shall not be innocent. I've entitled this this morning, one liner, just called it Seduction. And I can't, get, I can't get around these chapters, five, six, and seven, the reoccurring theme is a warning of adultery and committing this particular sin. So as, as much as I'd like to pick another topic this morning, one of our safeguards in doing chapter by chapter and verse by verse type teaching is it forces us to deal with issues that are a little uncomfortable sometimes, a little awkward to talk about. But we're dealing with something here that uh, every parent has dealt with and sitting down and having that talk with, with their son or their daughter. So 5, 6, and 7 deals mostly with the sexual sin of adultery. Here's Solomon, a father, talking with his son, primarily about the consequences that would happen to him if he would ever allow himself to be seduced by who Solomon refers to here as simply an evil woman. Now, it's interesting to me the timing of of all this because last week we addressed and showed Ray Comfort's movie called Audacity, which dealt very wisely and tactfully with the issue of homosexuality. You can download that on the internet, and Ray has given us permission to run it on our cable program, which I'm very, very grateful for. The Lord had the timing of that work out just right. But in the movie, as it dealt with the issue last week of homosexuality, this week adultery, um, in the movie, the main character's name is Peter. He's a Christian, about a year old. And um, in the very beginning of the movie, he's having a conversation uh, with his uh, friend whose name is Diana. And um, she finds out that he's a Christian. Well, how long have you been a Christian for? He says, well, for about a year. And he's reading his Bible and he says, uh, so do you believe all that stuff? And he says, yeah, I believe every, every word of it. And then she brings up this question. So you think a gay person should be stoned? And it sort of sets him back a little bit. He says, you know, I was just kind of studying about that. And he says, I got to go. And he's up and he's gone. This week, I would like to address the answer to Diane's question. We're going to cover other material too. But as we do... Uh, the Bible speaks loud and clear about that. In Ray's movie, we have Ray being very wise and tactful in engaging people. And, uh, you know, there's a proverb that says, if a man is wise, he's able to draw out counsel. We see Jesus doing it with the woman at the well. 
Two people have animosity against each other, the Samaritans and the Jews, and yet Jesus won her over. In contrast, we have organizations that are out there that hold up signs that are very inflammatory, and it's not being tactful, it's not being wise in any way, shape, or form. It's not opening a a form of dialogue and communication. On the contrary, it's just uh, closing a person up instead of opening up. So as we get into this this morning, we need to first to establish what does God's word have to say, not about homosexuality, but in sexual sins in general. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the New New Testament, chapter 6. The Corinthian church, (laughs) for all of its gifts being manifested, was the most messed up of all the churches. And uh, we'll be coming back to Corinthians several times this morning. Let me draw your attention to verse 9, where he tells the Corinthian church, do you not know that the unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God? And these are the most important three words. Please don't be deceived with what you're about to read. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicator, nor idolater, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And just so we don't get a pharisaical type attitude here, he goes on to say in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed. In other words, yes, they lived that lifestyle, but that lifestyle was a, a, a lifestyle of choice, Therefore, when it was made an issue that this is a sin that could actually keep you out of the kingdom of heaven, uh, they believed the gospel, and they were washed, and they became born again, and a new person in Christ. Good time for an amen. Amen. And they became a new person. But what it points out here, as it gets into the area of homosexuality, the Bible teaches that it's a choice. Not that you were born that way. If you believe that, I want to tell you straight out on the authority of God's word, it is a lie, and you're being deceived. And so the issue of I can't really do anything about it is simply a lie, and you're deceived. Clear cut, and that's simple. Because such were some of you, but you were changed. You were given a new life. Old things passed away. All things have become new. And you were sanctified, and you were justified, just as though you'd never sinned, in the name of the Lord Jesus and by, the, by his Holy Spirit. I want to add one more that's not in this list so that we can all feel part of the party here this morning, okay? And that is in Revelation 21. The same list is given, and I'm quoting verse 7. It talks about believers. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will, I will be his son. Well, what does it mean to become an overcomer? There's some false teaching out there today that actually sort of implies that you're going to arrive at the state of of having your act together and actually becoming a perfect Christian. Well, I gave up on that many years ago. And that that reality is that Paul called himself, what he means by overcoming is is continuing in the faith. Paul says, "I've, I've kept the faith. But he's going to call himself the chiefest of sinners all at the same time. So how is a man made righteous? Uh, Here in verse, the next verse, the list goes on, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the idolaters, and now this one, and all liars shall have their part 
in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Don't tell me the Bible doesn't talk about hell. No matter what Rob Bell tells you, he's lying. The Bible clearly speaks of a place of eternal judgment. And sin, basically, is sin. We have all broken God's law, and we would all stand guilty before him. But here's the good news in the gospel. God became a man. He took on human form. And he's the one who said, I don't want you to think that I've come to destroy the prophet or the laws. I did not come to destroy the law, but I came to fulfill it. Well, well, what's the law? You go back to the commandments. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, so on and so forth. That's the law. And what he means by I didn't come to destroy it, he says, no, I came to fulfill it. Well, what does that mean? That means he was tempted in every way, yet never yielded to one of them. He was God in the flesh, lived a perfect life, and therefore qualified becoming that lamb without spot or blemish that could take our sins on him. It was a fulfillment of Passover. They were to bring a lamb, spotless, male of the first year. And it's a picture, Old Testament picture of the New Testament teaching of of the Lord uh, on the cross. He lived a perfect life. He allowed himself to be sacrificed. He says, nobody takes my life from me. Nobody. I lay it down. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to raise it up again. And he proved both. He proved that nobody was taking his life. Because (laughs) I hope we get to see this someday. When they came to take him, they said, we're looking for Jesus. And I said, I'm here. And No, he said, I am, is what he said. And when he said, I am, they all fell down. Don't you think it would have been a good time to go home? (laughs) I would have if I were them. He was just showing who's really in control here. And the other thing he said, Peter, put away the sword. Don't you think I could call for 12 legions of angels right now? They take care of the situation. One angel in the Old Testament took out 184,000 Syrians in one night. Imagine what 12 legions could do. But that was all at his hand. That was all in his power and authority. No man takes my life. I'm just... I'm laying it down, and I want you to know who's in charge here. I'm doing it of my, my own free will. For he said, for this reason I came into the world to be the sacrifice for many. Now, this is the gospel. So as Paul is presenting it to the Christian church, there's sort of a mandate that's been given to me and to you. Paul says, therefore, because of what Christ did, We are now ambassadors for Christ. And he says, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Anybody can make peace with God. There's no sin you've ever committed, no line you've ever crossed, that his love isn't deeper than both. And he's able to restore to the utmost those that are simply calling out to him and the gospel, if I would give you one verse, gang, to, to give you the whole gospel in one verse, is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I call this a great exchange. I stole it from Bruce Carroll, but I love the, the way he puts it. The great exchange. He took my sin, and he gave me his righteousness. So, Paul, 
wanting to make sure that people knew where he stood on this issue. He said, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he says, of whom I am the chief. Most of us here would say, get in the back of the line, Paul. I'm one up on you in this area. And that's the longer you walk with the Lord, the more, like Paul, you come to that conclusion. So the question is, does the Bible teach stoning or the death penalty for these sins, and let me name them, adultery, our subject this morning, homosexuality, or lying? Has anybody in here not lied? Please raise your hand. If you raise your hand, I'm going to call you a liar. (laughs) So, according to the scriptures, the list, the list is no different than adultery if you're a liar. The list is no different from a liar or a homosexual. They are simply sins. One sin. Uh, Paul says, you want to talk about the law? Okay, let's talk about the law. But you better do it perfectly. Because if you've offended in one, you're guilty of all. Nobody can do that. Bingo. Nobody can do that. Only one person ever did it. Only one person ever lived the perfect life and came for one purpose to do the great exchange. The only way that man could once again be restored. So the question again is, what does the Bible teach on this subject? Well, uh, what about lying? Would God ever kill a person for lying? This is gonna shock you a little bit. The answer to that question is yes. It actually happened once, I wanna show it to you. Acts chapter five, New Testament. Acts chapter five, very, very early days in the church. Revival had sprung out. 3,000 people just got saved from all parts of the world. They're all in Jerusalem. They don't know where to sleep. They don't know what's for supper. A guy named Barnabas took some property and sold it, gave it to the church, said, you guys need some, <laughs> you need some money for putting these people up and feeding them. And there was a couple, Barnabas must have got some recognition for this act of goodwill because a couple named Ananias and Sapphira Uh, In chapter 5, verse 1, a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, took a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it still not your own control? Why then have you conceived this thing in your heart that you have lied not to men, but to God? Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon those who heard these things. And the young man arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, And Peter answered her, and he says, well, tell me so much whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yeah, that's how much it was. Then Peter said, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they're going to carry you out too. Then immediately she fell down at the feet and breathed her last, and the young man came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her with her husband. 
Question, did God ever implement the death penalty for lying? Answer, yeah, he did, but only once. Why do you suppose he did that? Because of the next verse. So great fear fell upon the church and upon all those who heard these things. Just imagine if God was still taking people out for lying. We would have a lot of dead people in the pews this morning and one dead one behind the pulpit. (laughs) There'd be nobody here. Why? Because we exaggerate. And we go, Lord, that was an exaggeration. There's this great commercial on TV. I don't even know what they're advertising, but it shows this guy's fishing. And he's got a fish as big as the boat on the hook. And he's rambling on about this, how big this fish is and as big as the boat. And it took him seven hours to get it in. And then the guy who was with him came up with the fish. <laughs> a little bit later, says, where do you want it? And he's going to go put it over there. Tendency to make it bigger than, than what it is. We're all guilty of it. So when we are, we get convicted. And then First John 1, 9 kicks in. If you sin, confess your sin. And he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you. But I want you to know that at the get-go, the very first time it happened, he was setting a precedent. He's saying, I'm serious about sin. It cost me my own son to come and die for what people are taking very, very lightly today. So I think this one-time event does not set a precedent for the, the way that God deals with sin, um, but he did in this particular place. Some might say, well, what about Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 and 11, where it talks about adultery? I'll read it for you. Verse 10 says, and a man that commits adultery with another man's wife, even he that commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer, notice, and the adulteress, too, shall surely be put to death. And in verse 20, and the man that lies with his father's wife hath uncovered her nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be on them. Now, the fact this is, this is referred to as incest, and we actually have a case of this happening, and we see the judgment that's laid down as a result of, of this particular sin in the church. So if you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and let's see what the penalty is. Paul judges the situation and let's see what the judgment is. Same sin that Leviticus recalls the death penalty for happened in a New Testament church in Corinth chapter five where he says in verse one, he says, gang, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles that a man would have his father's wife, Leviticus 20.11. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned. For who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For indeed, I'm absent in the body, but present in spirit. I've already judged and as though I were present concerning him who has done this deed. So Paul's making a judgment call. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with him and with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your glorying is not good in this, in this matter. 
Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Everybody knew what was going on, and nobody was addressing it. And Paul said, I'm not there, and I'm, I'm addressing it. But my point is, the punishment was not stoning. That's called for in Leviticus. It gets back to the question in the movie, so, do you stone a gay person? Well, do you stone a liar? Do you stone somebody who's sleeping with his father's family? Well, in the Old Testament, that was under the capital punishment law of the land of Israel. This was for the law of Israel. We have our own forms of capital punishment today. Uh, They're debating right now whether this guy who went into theaters out in Colorado, they're debating whether or not he should get the death penalty. In our country, 34 states still allow capital punishment. So under certain conditions, under certain states, it's... uh, we, we make a judgment that this is wrong. Well, Paul will go on in this to write about there's difference how you judge things in the church. That's verses 1 through 9. And then he talks about 9 through 11. You guys can read it later. He says, but I'm not talking about worldly people. I'm talking about people in the church. He says, God's going to judge those that aren't in the church. But in the church, I'm making a judgment call right now. Huh, that's not very loving, Dwight. I mean, kick the guy out? Yeah, it was the most loving thing Paul could do. I'm going to say that again. It was the most loving thing Paul could do. Why? Because he was living in a sexual sin and he was deceived. Don't be deceived. Here's the list that you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me clarify. David committed adultery. And then to cover his tracks, he committed murder. A double whammy. And yet, the law called for the death penalty for both. And yet, David was, his sins were, were put aside. It's interesting to me that the judgment of God was superseded, and it's going to be superseded also here. You have to wonder, you know, what, what happened to this guy? I think about what did he think about? Uh, it was a wake-up call for him. All of a sudden, he couldn't go to Bible study. He couldn't go to men's prayer. And he, he was locked out. The Amish would call it shunning, in a sense. Different, but similar in some ways. So what happened to him? Well, now we need to go to 2 Corinthians 2. Some time has passed, but the rationale for Paul making this judgment is so that he would wake up and realize you can't mess around and think you're going to heaven. And he says, Turn him over to the devil. Pray for the destruction of his flesh. Why? So his soul would be saved. He needed to come to repentance and turn from this sin. He wasn't doing it. Now, chapter 2, pick it up in verse 1, 1 Corinthians. And he's talking about this letter that he wrote back in 1 Corinthians. He said, "I, I determined that within myself that I would not come to you again in sorrow. For I made you sorrowful then who is he who made me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? He's talking about the guy he had kicked out of church. I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those to whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you and that my joy is the joy of all of you. I don't want to do it. I had no joy in doing it, but it had to be done is what he's saying. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you would be grieved, but that you would make known the love which I have so abundantly for you. 
I love that guy. I don't want to see him go to hell. But if anyone has caused you grief, he has not grieved me. But all of you, uh, to some extent, uh, not to be too severe. So what happened? The guy repented. And now he says the punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. Punishment is now sufficient. Cross out stoning. God dealt with him. God broke him. Led him to repentance. Uh, He says, so on the contrary, verse 7, you ought rather to forgive him, comfort him, or love on him, lest perhaps one might be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put to you the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I forgive that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Verse 11 is important. Do this or else Satan could take advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. Say everybody went around giving this guy the cold shoulder, even though now he's back in fellowship. What's the guy supposed to think? No, man, I blew it. They're not going to let me forget it. I'm going to carry this thing around with me the rest of my life. That's exactly what the enemy would do. You call yourself a Christian. You're back here in church. I remember what you did. Don't you remember what you did? The Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12. He accuses you and me day and night. Wow, that's a pretty heavy, heavy verse in the Bible. So, don't be ignorant of his devices. And might be, let me slip this in at this time. If you have committed this sin in the past and you've repented of it, then my Bible says that God has not only forgiven your sins, but he's taken, he says, I'm not gonna remember it anymore. Matter of fact, I'm gonna separate it as far as the east is from the west. And so now... The enemy comes with the accusation and you have to stand upon that scripture instead of what he's whispering in your ear. Are you tracking with me? Somebody say amen. Because he will. And that's what Paul meant here. He says, make sure you love on that guy because the devil's gonna be on him if you don't. So you, you love on him. What's your point? Well, he's restored. The punishment is not stoning to answer the question in the movie. The punishment is disfellowshipped so that he would become aware of his transgression so that he could be beat up in the world a little bit, so to speak. I can't remember the guy's name, well-known pastor who had told the guy that decided I was going to walk with the Lord. He says, before you walk out the door, I just want to tell you one thing. Sin is hard. He didn't see the guy for six months. And he comes back into the pastor's office after six months and he just looks at the pastor and he said, sin is hard. <laughs> it is hard. And when you're outside of, of that, it can beat you up and it can, it, can, uh, and it can reduce you. So this is what happened to this guy. He repents. The repentance led to restoration. And... Um, This is where Paul now writes in Galatians to you and me. He says, now brethren, let's say we know somebody like this. He says, if anyone is overtaken or stumbles in a a sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one, how, how do you do it? In a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. 
Um, in other words, this could happen to you or me at a weak moment. This could happen to you. So consider yourself. Go after him if you think you're a spiritual man. Restore him, love on him, and bring him back in. How did Jesus deal with the subject of adultery when there was actually a woman caught in the very act? Turn with me to John chapter 8 in, the, in, the, in John's gospel. Jesus actually teaches us how to deal with the situation, but he also we'll see the judgment that's passed down by the Lord himself when it comes to sexual sins. Pick it up in verse 1 of John 8. Now Jesus was on the mount that is called Olivet, but early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. I just love and I can't wait to see the mannerisms in the way the Lord taught. You know, when I turn on TV today and I see some of these (laughs) TV preachers prancing around with their white hankies and putting on a, a show like a, some guy in a three-ring circus or something. It's very showful, but it's not the Jesus style. Jesus was very, very low-key when it came to teaching. Here he sat down. I think it probably put a lot of people at ease. A whole bunch of people were there, and he's given a Bible study. And then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in the act of adultery, and when they set him in the middle of the midst, or her, they said to him, now teacher, This woman was caught in the act of adultery, in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Now if you're in your margin there, I want you to look. What does it say? Leviticus 20, verse 10, where it calls for the national penalty, death penalty for Israel was stoning. And he said, this is what the law declares. But what do you say? And this they said, testing him, and that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, first of all, get a picture in your eyes here. They're they're there for one reason, to trap him. And uh, they actually caught a woman in the act of adultery. Well, if you read Acts Uh, Leviticus 20, carefully, it says, the adulterer and the adulteress. Last time I remember, it takes two to tango, doesn't it? My question is, where's the guy if they caught the woman? He's not there. This is a setup. And they're not caring at all about the woman in any way, shape, or form. So they continued asking him. They're not letting him off the hook. And he raised up and he said to them, well, He who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone at her. You see, he was equating all sin. If you're guilty of one sin, you're guilty of them all. Jesus knew that. They didn't. They were very self-righteous. The most devastating indictment against the hypocrisy of religiosity is Matthew 23. Jesus spares no words to describe these vipers and broods of liars and serpents he says, you devils, you, you um, withhold people from coming into my kingdom. And he was upset with them. He says, he who is without sin, go ahead, you can throw the first stone. Oh, I wish I would love to have seen this. And he stooped down 
and he wrote again on the ground. So here you have the finger of God, and he's writing on the ground. When's the first time you read about the finger of God writing? How about Mount Sinai and Ten Commandments? It's speculative. What did he write? What did he say? What if he was the original writer who wrote it in the first place was rewriting it again? I've had different thoughts over the years. But let's just say he was putting down the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not lie. Bear false witness. What do you think, Simon? All of a sudden, Simon takes off. Oh, thou shalt not commit adultery. You're right. What about you, Cephas? All of a sudden, he says, oh, I just remembered, I've got to go home right now. He's gone. And the Bible tells us in the next verse, and them being convicted in their conscience went out one by one. What I'm getting out of this is every time the Lord wrote something, I think he did sort of a head, head tilt up and looked eyeball to eyeball and with those eyes of God looking straight through, knowing everything about that person and that look, they would know. He knew somehow. Time to go home. So Jesus was left alone and the woman was standing in its midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up, he saw no one but the woman. And he said to her, well, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, but what's the word there? Say it. Lord, there's a lot going on here. He knows what she's doing. Well, she knows who Jesus is. Everybody in Jerusalem knows who Jesus is. And... um, The thief on the cross, what was his prayer of repentance? Lord, remember me when you get to heaven. What did he have going for him? He was a thief. That's the only thing he had going for him. But he said, Lord, would you remember me? This woman's line is even shorter. She says, no one Lord. But in that, as God knew what was in the heart of those men and their sins, he knew that this woman was repentant and that she wanted his forgiveness and she was grateful. I mean, she, her, her life was on the line, and the Lord saved her. And, um, and then Jesus said, and neither do I condemn you, because he had forgiven her. Yes, the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, and he did before he died on the cross. He did it with, uh, oh, I'm getting too sidetracked. I've got to keep to my notes. I get sidetracked way too easy. Neither do I condemn you. Go and get six months of counseling because you're really going to need it. Pay $120 an hour. It's going to take a long time for you to get over this one. Is that what he says? No. Does he condone the sin? No. He says, go and sin no more. You're a new creation now. And so he's basically telling you your lifestyle will change. My lifestyle changed radically. From a hippie of the 60s to a born-again Jesus freak. And uh, haven't looked back. Don't want to look back. And that's what happens when you're really saved. You don't want to look back on what? All that? So you become a grateful person and and you think, "Who, who can I share this with? Who can I tell this good news about? I know what I deserve. I know what I did. And this guy came and took my place, wiped the slate clean and says, I'm not going to remember any of that stuff anymore. That makes a grateful person. And I am a grateful person for for what the Lord has done. So Jesus um, deals with this, and my point is the penalty, answering the question from the movie, is stoning the death penalty for sexual sins. 
The answer is no, but God will judge someday the world when the books are open at the great white throne in judgment. And only those that aren't saved will be there. Ours is called the judgment seat of Christ. So basically, he's telling her, no, go and sin no more. He was not condoning the sin. Sin is sin, and God hates sin. So no more sleeping around, no more shacking up, no more hooking up, no more co-inhabiting, none of the above. You can't do that uh, and think you're a Christian. And if you think you can, then I need to tell you you're deceived and you're not going to heaven. And trust me, it's the most loving thing I can, I can tell you. Because if you are, and our, our culture today, and the reason that um, uh, it's, it's so prevalent in our culture today. Let's go back to Proverbs and look at one more thought yet this morning. Back to Proverbs chapter 6. Picking up in verse 26. Why is Solomon having his heart to heart with his son? Solomon wants to warn his son of the consequences that will happen to him if he, is in, if he is seduced by this woman. So he says in verse 26, by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and not be burned? You're gonna get burned if you mess around in this and there's going to be consequences. Just last year, I'll tell a personal story of our East Coast Pastors Conference last year. We had about 1,200 pastors, assistant pastors, leaders that were in attendance. And towards the end of it, we were having a time of prayer. Um, One of our own, actually a very good friend of mine, had committed the act of adultery. It was making national news. Everybody knew about it. Everybody heard about it. And it was addressed. And the same warning that Solomon is giving his son as one of our leaders was giving us. And um, he had our attention because we loved this brother. And we knew it could be any one of us. And as he was sharing, he was giving the same admonition. Cost him everything. You know, all, all his works that were there, many years of ministry for good, faithfully teaching and loving on the flock for years and years and years. That's not what he's going to be remembered for because he's reduced to a crust of bread because he yielded to this particular sin. Another denomination, it was Jimmy Swaggart. Here's a guy that was one of the greatest musicians. His cousin was, um, oh, help me here because I go there and I say something like that and I, Jerry Lee Lewis, thank you. We got a guy my age sitting up here. <laughs> and the incredible musician, incredible evangelist, used by God in a mighty way, the Spirit of God upon him. And yet, what does he remember for? Reduced to a crust of bread. I think the Lord forgave him. I know he did. And I believe he's still going to have his treasures in heaven. But as far as his good name, that shot. And probably a lot of people hurt. So, why the warning here? Well, we got our warning, and um, it sure got a lot of people's attention. What are the guidelines? What, is Bible, what does the Bible actually say about sex and marriage? Having a Bible study called seduction? Oh, that should be interesting. <laughs> Calvary Chapel on Sunday morning. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
trying to cover a lot of territory this morning. What does the Bible say about sex and marriage? First of all, why even have marriage? A lot of people are debating that today. Paul, writing to this church, says, Now concerning the things of which I wrote you, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Why do we have marriage? Because of uh, the natural drive that we have as human beings for sexual relations. In our culture today, that we, that we have sort of this attitude. Well, um, this is one of, of a Wisconsin metaphor. Why buy the cow if I can get the milk for free? That's a Wisconsin metaphor, in case you didn't come up with it. And the idea is, why should I get married when we can just live together? Well, no. You see, the Bible calls that fornication. It doesn't call them just living together. The Bible calls it sex before marriage is fornication. Good time for an amen. Hard time to say amen in the times in which we live. But nonetheless, our culture says one thing. You don't need to, but God's word calls it something completely else. I'm talking to the church now, not the world out there, asshole, because that's typical lifestyle for them. All right, verses three through five. Now, intimacy between a man and a woman. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. And then he goes on to say, do not deprive one another, except with consent. He's talking about sexual relationships. Don't deprive one another, except with consent for a short period of time, that you can give yourself to fasting and prayer, and then come together again, make sure you get back together, lest Satan would uh, not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. God knows us. He knows how we're wired. He says the only time that you withhold yourself in this, in this partnership is when you want to get away with the Lord and be alone with him. And you want to fasting. You take away not only um, relations with your wife or your husband, but also food and deprive yourself of the things of the flesh so that you might strengthen yourself with the things of the spirit And then he qualifies it by saying, but don't do it for too long because you're a human being and that sexual nature drive is going to come back and Satan could take advantage of you, so make sure you come back together again. Now, in the movie that Ray Comfort has, one of the characters says, so what does God have against sex anyway? And the guy just laughs at him. Peter laughs at him. He says, are you kidding me? We had Adam. He's totally naked. We have Eve. She's totally naked. And he tells them to go have sex. (laughs) That's what he says about it. Well, actually he says it's more King James Version. Multiply and be fruitful. But that's the first thing he gives, the the first command to Adam and Eve is be, be fruitful and multiply. My point, God created sex. Air drive, number one, you go for about a minute. Water, maybe three or four days. Jesus made it 40 days with no food. But right next to that is your biological function to reproduce. It's natural. And God is the one who instituted um, the consummation 
of the sexual union between a man and a woman, but in the marriage relationship. Another good time for an amen. Okay. So, seven, there is an exception to this. For I wish that all men were even as I myself. He's talking about a gift that Paul was given. For each one of us has his own gift from God, one in this manner and the other in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. In other words, if you don't have the gift of being celibate and you have this natural biological urge, then marry. That's clearly what's being stated here. Now, I have to address some false doctrine. Because in the last days, we're told, you need to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, that marriage is going to be forbidden. 1 Timothy chapter 4, we're talking about the last days. Sometimes people think we shouldn't name names or organizations or institutions. I disagree, because the Bible clearly does. And uh, especially in Jude pointing out um, names and organizations. In verse one it says, now the spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and then doctrines of demons. They'll be speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. So it's pretty clear up to verse two what we have here. We have what? False teachers, false doctrine in the last days. Well, what are some of the false doctrine? Verse three, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from food which God created to be received with thanksgiving. The Roman Catholic Church is guilty in this area and should be classified as false doctrine. Well, why would you say that, Dwight? Because there's men and women who really love God and they want to serve God. But in order to be a priest or a nun, you have to take the vow of celibacy. How many lawsuits are out there today? Because people wanting to do this, yet can't because of their own natural desires, get themselves and the church. And how many billions of dollars in lawsuits have been filed? Over what? over saying you can't be married and uh, serve the Lord, forbidding to marry. I'd take it a step farther and forbidding to eat certain foods. (laughs) You know why we have fish fries on Friday night in Wisconsin? (laughs) I remember my 12th birthday. I didn't know that Catholics couldn't eat meat on Friday. And so I'm having my birthday party and, and one of my friends goes over to other friends and said, you're eating a hot dog. And the, the guy's face turned white. And I thought, what's, what's the big deal? And my mom explained it to it later. She says, well, son, he can't eat meat because it's Friday. And I said, mom, that doesn't make any sense at all. And it doesn't. And here, the Bible says it's a false doctrine. Dwight, you should have been talking about that. I'm not. I'm simply reading First Timothy chapter 4, saying that in the last days, there's going to be false doctrine. And it's good to get people in trouble saying you can't get married and serve God at the same time uh, in, in, in the Roman Catholic Church. 
So, um, let's leave that right where it is. And um, let's begin to wind things up here this morning. This is simply called... um, Okay, we need to go back to Proverbs one last time, and we'll wind this up. Solomon's basically doing what every father does here. And he warns his son. And what he's giving him here is now recorded in the Bible as part of Holy Scripture. So the question arises, we live in a generation that at a click of a button or certain TV channels that your brain can be inundated with all sorts of filth and pornography and everything that's out there. So with all that going on, what do we have as believers to help us uh, when we're tempted, when we're tried? What do we do and how do we do it? That's why I want to close things up this morning. And I would press it by saying, well, it really all depends on what you're feeding yourself. It really all depends on what you're taking in. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart is what's going to come out here. What you take in, not talking food-wise, but what you take in can defile you. And so, having said that, let's turn as we close this morning to 2 Corinthians in the New Testament chapter 10. When you're tempted, not if, (laughs) but when you are tempted. How do we deal with it? Jesus was tempted when he was at his weakest point. He was hungry. And the devil came up and tempted him. He says, well, you're God. Turn these stones into bread. Interesting, the answer the Lord gave. Man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from this book. So now you're tempted. What do you do? In verse 3, 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, we... For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. I want to warn you this morning, gang. If you're thinking about messing around, stop right now. If you are messing around, stop right now. The consequences could destroy your life and reduce you to a piece of bread. And God, in his wisdom, tells us how to do that. It says, casting down, verse 5, everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Well, adultery sure would do that. And then bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. This is a major scripture to understand. In other words, you're tempted. And as you're tempted, you think, how did Jesus handle this situation? He quoted scripture to the devil. And man can't live by bread alone. So you take that temptation and you say, Lord, what do you think? Should I do this? <laughs> that's all the farther that's got to go. Because once it gets to that point of bringing it captive and into the obedience of Christ, Lord, I'm praying about this. Should I go to uh, this particular bar tonight? No, I don't think so. Unless you're there to uh, preach the gospel or anything else. So you bring it into captivity. You pray about it, and with that, 
um, you're sifting it through God's word, God's word will probably say something like this. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Take that second look and you could be in big trouble. Then in Colossians 3, if I don't put my mind on those things, Colossians 3, 1 says, if you're raised with Christ, if you're a born again Christian, then seek those things that are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Verse two, very important, set your mind on things above. By doing that and not on things of the earth, we're all of a sudden, you know, it's like the wonderful old song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And when you do the things of this world, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. Oh, Lord, I don't want to sin against you. I don't want to hurt myself. I don't want to hurt the flock. I don't want to hurt my friends. Please don't let me fall into this sin. Protect me from it. And so set your mind on things above. For you died and your life is hidden in Christ with God. One last verse, and then I'm going to read something that Chuck gave my Bible study this morning in one page as I was reading wisdom for today. But Paul says, finally, brethren, talk about what you put your mind on. Well, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, Meditate on these things, not on the garbage that's in the world, but that the good stuff that's also out there on, on the internet that can actually build you up and encourage you in the ways of the Lord. Well, Dwight, you've been pretty straightforward with some of these things, and I'll admit I need to pray for boldness when we have to deal with a Bible study like we went through this morning. So I was up a little bit earlier this morning. I thought I'd read my wisdom for today, and the Lord encouraged me. And I'll leave you with it this morning. It's July 19th. It's called The Plot Against Jesus. The same way they tried to trap him with the woman caught in the act of adultery. This is a little bit different. This one comes from Mark. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy Jesus. Mark 3, verse 6. Logic tells you it would be lawful to do good no matter what day it is. But because Jesus dared to heal a man on the Sabbath and then defend his actions against their tradition, the Jews actually sought to kill him. Even today, some feel they must destroy Jesus. The movie industry frequently casts Christians in a negative light, seeking to destroy the influence of Jesus in our society. Organizations have long since fought to remove Jesus from the public sector, of our nation. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court has helped them. I thought, how timely. Chuck wrote this years ago. And then in the middle, he always has something in a box. And this is what encouraged me this morning. Don't sit on the fence and look the other way. He goes on to say, why is this happening? It is because, as Jesus said, men love darkness rather than the light. You see, Jesus spoke out against adultery, hating lying, cheating, and instead taught forgiveness. He taught that we must love God and love one another. But those who are filled with hatred towards God and their fellow man feel they must destroy the message of Jesus. If they could do that, then perhaps 
they can live their sinful lives without guilt. I believe in the coming days we will see more of our religious liberties taken, even more oppression of Christianity by the government. How timely is that? Those bent on destroying Jesus won't stop until they can see his influence removed from our society. Don't sit on the fence. Don't look the other way. Make an active stand for the Lord wherever he has acted. Amen? Good time to stand and pray. Let's do it. Lord, thank you for the timing that I don't take as a coincidence at all with Chuck's wisdom for today. And Lord, as we deal with every issue that we find in your word this morning, we had to tackle a difficult one. But we're grateful, and we pray, Lord, this morning, first of all, I pray for anyone that's been thinking about just messing around or sleeping around. I pray that a healthy fear would fall upon the church in the same way it did with Ananias and Sapphira. And Lord, help us not be deceived that we can't live an ungodly lifestyle and think everything is fine between us. Lord, thank you for the instruction and clarification in what the Bible teaches us between the Old Testament law and your ministry of loving and forgiving any sin if a person will simply come and repent. Lord, this morning as we close in prayer, I just pray for anyone that right now is being just called on the carpet by your Holy Spirit or maybe watching through live stream. Lord, that this would be the time they stop right here now and that the fear that fell upon the early church, that good godly fear that leads to repentance. Lord, may that happen here this morning. And then afterwards, may there be a total and clear restoration of fellowship with you and brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, thank you for your word. Bless your people this day in Jesus' name I pray. All God's people said, amen.